Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast with Simon Cocking, Senior Editor. I'll be doing a series of interviews with people at the cutting edge of green tech, clean tech, and anything else that we think is interesting and worth listening to for you guys, our listeners. Hi, so um, today who am I talking to? I'm Michael Prime, a bioelectrical composer and curator of Lane Gardens here on Cape Clear Island. Yeah, so look, I mean, you have um, a long track record of both plants and music. So is this, was this always the plan, or are you a musician who grew plants, or a planter who made music, or...? Well, I think the plants, the plants probably go right back, because... Um, I was I was into growing plants from the age of five years old, <laughs> I think. But um, what what really shaped uh, my goal in the kinds of plants I wanted to grow was a visit to Tresco Gardens in the Isles of Scilly. Yeah. Um, when I was a lad, and uh, I was just blown away by the plants that grew there, which I'd never seen before anywhere else in England. And that sort of sent me on a long-term task of of firstly trying to grow these plants. Uh, In London I succeeded for a few years, but then we had three bad winters in a row, which finished most of them off. Mm -hmm. And so um, that led me to a search for a milder spot. And uh, that's how I ended up on Cape Clear Island. So, so, So you're choice of being on Cape was plant related then yeah absolutely wow I've been well for years uh, it was a dream to start my own botanic garden I used to work for Lewisham Council managing nature reserves which were mostly uh, railway embankments Mm -hmm. and and so on little strips of land that were left over and I did start a little botanic garden there on the side called Besson Street uh, multicultural garden but everything I did there was subject to committee. Uh, yes. La- housing were constantly trying to grab the land. It was a constant battle. So it was always my dream to have my own botanic garden uh, to do the kind of things that I wanted. Um, a large part of which centres around ex situ conservation of plants that are mm-hmm. rare and endangered in the wild. We've got an example of one of those here. This is Blechnum tabulari, uh, which comes from Table Mountain in South Africa. And that is rare and quite endangered in the wild now, but it absolutely thrives here. Yeah, look, I mean, when you were doing the tour, it was quite striking that you have plants from Africa, Asia, South America. So, you know, I guess, like you say, um, well, I guess, how is it that we're able to have such a geographically diverse range of plants, but here? It has to do with the unique geographical location of Cape Clear Island. Uh, for its latitude, it has the mildest climate in the world. Uh, because we have the full strength of the Gulf Stream flowing around us, and because in a bad winter we have sea to the northeast of us, uh, it gives us a remarkable lack of frost. Mm-hmm. We have had the occasional, back in December 2010, and again the beast from the east, uh, we had several degrees of frost, but that is rare. Um, and it is less than you would get anywhere on the mainland. At the same time, we don't have baking hot summer temperatures. Yeah. 
uh, the, the, the sea air constantly cools things and the highest temperature we have ever recorded here is 28 centigrade. So lowest minus 4, highest 28. That is a kind of temperature range that you would not find virtually anywhere else in the northern hemisphere. Uh -huh. um, a lot of the plants we grow here, they have tried to grow elsewhere in the northern hemisphere and either the heat or the cold finishes them off. Yeah. So that kind of extreme oceanic climate is something more typical of the southern hemisphere where a greater uh, portion of the surface is sea rather than land. Yeah, that, that moderates the temperatures. So we're a bit until of a you get to a big continent like Australia, and then it goes <laughs> crazy, of course. But um, we also get quite strong uh, sunlight here, strong UV, and that helps a lot with the mountain plants. Okay, things like the Andean cacti, uh, which like cool temperatures, but blasts of strong sun, and they do get that here. So we get a lot of cloud edge effect. Uh, combined with the clear atmosphere, uh, which, which uh, gives us quite high UV levels. Okay, and so I mean, and so you've re recently released a piece of music. Well, I mean, quite a lot because you're kind of putting a back catalogue up on uh, Bandcamp. But you did the one about the book uh, decomposing with the mushrooms. Indeed. Well, that that was uh, that was interesting. That that was Merlin's idea. Merlin has written the book. Uh, entangled life about um, mycology in general and uh, the importance of fungi to uh, the planet and to human culture and so on. Uh, it actually comes out this month. Mm. So I haven't read it yet because the two copies he sent me already had oyster mushroom mycelium growing. <laughs> so he had this idea to actually grow uh, mushrooms on copies of his book. And when he heard about the sonification that I do with fungi, he was keen to have me record uh, sounds from that. Yeah. Or rather, from the oyster mushrooms digesting the book. So uh, that recording has now become uh, a song by his brother Cosmo, uh -huh. um, which will be used to launch the book. Um, and I made a lot of other recordings from from the books as well, which are going to be a, a new project. Okay. Um, something that I had in mind during lockdown, when suddenly you couldn't play locally anymore. Uh, collaboration over the internet was the thing, and I started thinking about uh, collaborating with, with various composers around the world whose work... I liked, um, and, and somehow the, the lockdown gave a, a push to that, mm -hmm. so that's something else which will be evolving from these uh, mycelial recordings. So you've been making music for a long time, right? So, so when you began and started out, um, it seems now it's very closely fused with plants and yes. plant-derived, but, but has that been a thing that's come together? Well, it's been a long journey. Okay. Yeah, it's been a long journey. It, it was actually, um, oh, where, where do I begin? I suppose, where did I get first get interested in experimental music? Uh, I suppose as a kid, I didn't really come across a lot of experimental music until, uh, well, when I became a teenager, that was just the time uh, punk was coming out. So I, I, I was into that at the time, but mm -hmm. I very quickly got into the kind of post-punk experimental groups. And from there, I started to get to the so-called classical or contemporary avant-garde. 
So that that was something I was interested in. At, at the same time, I was at Sussex studying for my history degree. I was getting books on making tape music out of the library because yep. they had a good music section. They did, there, didn't so they? I was getting those books out, and finally, I managed to get hold of an old reel-to-reel tape recorder and started doing tape pieces on that. And then uh, later, after I'd done my degree and was based in London again. I came across uh, a course in uh, new music given by someone called Roger Sutherland, who had been a member of Cornelius Cardew's Scratch Orchestra back in the late 60s. And so I I took that course, and out of that course, um, and I suppose the common experience of of listening to all this uh, music that was new to us, uh, several of us, together with Roger, decided to form an electroacoustic improvisation group, um, which we did, and we started playing at uh, Morley College, and uh, then Barry Anderson gave us a home in West Square Electronic Music Studio. Um, so that that sort of that took off from there. Um, later on, I was uh, also in an ensemble called Organum, together with Emma and uh, played in all sorts of other combinations too but now uh, now we come back to the plant mm-hmm. I'd, I'd always been fascinated by all those books about the, you know the, the hidden powers of plants and so on about plants having reactions yes like yeah. animals do which and they have wired up and tested and oh, yes. they're sensing oh, stuff. Oh, well, that research goes back a long, long way. It's, it's, it's got, people have the idea it's, it's some kind of fringe science. It, it isn't at all. Uh, the bioelectrical fields of plants were first discovered and measured highly accurately by Sir Jagadir Chandra Bose in the very early years of the 20th century. Okay. So almost and as early as they began field recordings... Oh, well, yeah. the sonification is something else, and that that um, that comes down to a guy called Tony Bassett, who was an inventor uh, who made all, all sorts of weird and wonderful uh, gizmos, who had a workshop uh, just off Finchley Road, which, which was near St. Johnswood, where I grew up. And I somehow heard that he was making devices that could translate a plant's bioelectrical field into sound. So I was immediately interested and went to visit him at his workshop. And um, he he demonstrated some of his devices to me. And indeed, they they did pick up uh, the fluctuations of the bioelectrical field. The ones that he was making generally, he made with a very low sampling rate because actually... You know, people have a kind of fixed idea that music or sounds made by plants should be relaxing, peaceful, new agey. But in fact, they can be very edgy. Plants Mm -hmm. are constantly reacting to changes in their environment, and they're not always happy about them to give it a subjective tinge. Um, So anyway, so by, by giving them a low sampling rate, they would make a succession of pitched tones which corresponded more to people's idea of plant music so um, i had him make for me some units with uh, a fast reaction time so that they could actually track the uh, real-time fluctuations 
And those re results can often be uh, rhythmic, they can often be noisy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it, it's, it's basically what it does is to amplify that very faint voltage, which, which is produced by all living things, whether they're plants, animals, humans. The human equivalent is an EEG yeah. or uh, an EMG. So if, if we sample plants, um, what's, what, what would be the ideal way for it to be listened to? I mean, so I'm thinking that I can imagine sometimes it being sampled and used for dance music, but like you say, yeah. people are trying to... You shouldn't force it to be ambient if it's not ambient. Yeah. So, so I guess when you compose, are you composing it for people? To, in, in what way would you imagine people will listen to it? <laughs> well, that's a good question, which touches on on lots of things. Uh, firstly, is how I treat the bioelectrical sounds. Now, it's I'm amplifying that that micro voltage from the plant. That is being used to control an oscillator mm -hmm. and the changes in rhythm and the changes in pitch that you hear are a direct reflection of that fluctuating voltage so in my own work I I'm, I have a golden rule which is never to transform those sounds in a way that alters uh, those basic fluctuations in rhythm and pitch uh, I do all sorts of other transformations. Um, in a live setting, I often use dynamic filtering on the sounds to give them more of a percussive, mm -hmm. a fluctuating percussive quality. And I, I do other sorts of transformations in the studio, intermodulations and so on. But nothing that alters those basic uh, changes which are a reflection of, of the life force. So, yes, I have been sampled and some people have just stuck it in dance music and so on, but, um, that, but uh, the, 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 sounds, the sounds I've been getting, especially from fungi, are very, very rhythmical and um, uh, they produce fluctuating, very interesting rhythms with, with variations. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's been pushing my work in more of a rhythmic direction. In, uh -huh. in the concert I gave as part of the Open Ear Festival on Shirkin last year, mm -hmm. uh, it ended up being very almost like a percussion ensemble, because being inside the old uh, abbey in, in the courtyard... Yeah, like it's that, a great location. The sounds were slapping all around, and they really brought out the percussive qualities. And so on my new project, I'm actually going to be collaborating with a number of composers and musicians who uh, often work with, with rhythmic sounds. But again, I've asked them not to, to, to follow my golden rule, basically, mm -hmm. in, in how they treat the sounds. But um, this time those will be combined with, with uh, human instruments as well. Which is something that I've tried before. I, I started using the bioactivity translators back with um, in the days with morphogenesis and I'd be trying to use uh, some poor potted plant uh, that would sound fine at home and then I'd drag it into the, some smoky venue and by you know 11 o'clock at night the, the plants were usually uh, half asleep and not okay. making nearly as lively a sound or yeah. they didn't like the cigarette smoke or whatever. Performance know. anxiety. Or <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't a reflection of, of how the plant mm -hmm. normally sounds. So I turned against uh, using plants in, in sort of gig situations. 
and started um, moving towards doing uh, gallery installations and in situ performances yep. and installations uh, where I wire up plants that are actually growing in the ground where they live and you get much more natural sounds that way. Uh, I once did one in the courtyard of an old convent in Valencia on a hot, hot summer afternoon but the courtyard was relatively pleasant and huge old uh, citrus trees and so on um, and that, that, that was, that was a, a, one of my favourite performances. That's going to be included in a big box set of my work which is coming out uh, very soon Good. Okay. on the French label Ferns Records. Um, do you think we're just touching the beginning of, like, I mean, if, if you're saying that um, mushrooms and that family make different kind of ch beats to other types, are we still only, you know, beginning to work out, you know, what the best plants are for different things? Well, yes, yes and no, again, um, you know, my, my work with, my musical work with plants, the sonification, um, it, it is it is an artistic process, um, although it's, it's based on science. It's an artistic process. If you wanted to rigorously examine the precise differences in the electrical fields of, of different plants, you would be just recording a data set of the voltages onto a computer. You wouldn't bother going through the mm -hmm. sonification process. So, but on the other hand the sonification process allows us to share directly in the experiences yeah. of the plant. It, it, it enables us to, to an extent, to understand them. You know, when you hear a plant suddenly change when it's been a cloudy day and the sun suddenly comes out and you hear the go, Woo! you know, it, 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 bring, it brings home that they are living, reacting beings. Okay, so what have we come to look at now? This is Wania australis. Um, this is one of the rarest palm trees in the world. It is found only on the Juan Fernandez Islands off the coast of Chile. Those were actually the islands, uh, they used to be called the Alexander Selkirk Islands because okay. it's where the real-life Robinson <laughs> Crusoe was marooned. Um, anyway, now known as Juan Fernandez. And they have a, a very unique uh, flora there, which is probably probably has a lot of relict elements from when uh, the Andes had a different wetter climate. Um, but with all the changes in the ice ages, the only place these plants have survived are on Juan Fernandez, which uh, we were talking about Cape Clear being uniquely mild for its latitude. Juan Fernandez is much closer to the equator, but it has a uniquely cool climate for its latitude because it sits right in the middle of the freezing Humboldt current that comes up from Antarctica. So this plant has very exact requirements. It does not like temperatures much above 25C, okay. and it does not like temperatures much below minus 5C. So there's very few places in the world, many have tried, there's very few places where this can succeed. It's critically endangered in the wild. Goats eat all of the seedlings that come up. So um, we're, we're very lucky that we can do something to 
for ex situ conservation. So planet. how old is this particular one? This one would be about 15 years old now. And, and does it drop seed? I mean, so this is alive and healthy, yep. but if it got a bad winter, do you, is it the only one you have? It came through both the bad winters we uh -huh. had, which were the coldest we've recorded since first coming here 23 years ago. And comparing that to, you see, there is a lack of, of a dearth of weather stations around the Irish coast. But comparing it to other readings from other stations, I'm pretty confident that that is as low as it ever goes here. So are you... And How often does it put seedlings out? Or like Sorry, so yeah, to get back to the wallier, it's actually a tree where which has separate sexes, male and female. But luckily there are other spots on the south and east coast of Ireland which have surviving specimens too. The uh -huh. biggest one is at Earlscliff. So um, when, when the, the, the Earlscliff one is already flowering, um, I, th I think it's a female they said, yes. So once ours reaches uh, flowering size we'll be able to tell whether it's male or female. Uh, and to exchange pollen with yeah. other gardens where it's succeeded. So, it looks like cultivation of this tree in Ireland could actually help save the species. And um, why did you choose to plant it here in particular? Well, it was reasonably sheltered behind the, the Agnes hedge. Yeah. Uh, another reason is that uh, it's a plant which has a reputation for being difficult because like a lot of isolated mountain and island plants, it can be very vulnerable to phytophthora, soil rot. Okay, too, when it's too damp or? When it's too damp and warm, uh, phytophthora spreads through the soil. And I initially tried one up in what we call the jungle bit, and mm. it grew very quickly at first with all the moisture up there. But then late, late one summer, it got the rot and died. So when I managed to get another, I thought, no, I'll plant it down here which is away from any uh, seepage lines and uh, it's on a rocky uh, slope with good drainage and it's it's done brilliantly so um, yeah no it's lovely and um, so this is you saying ginger and um, where's this from and is this complementary planting or is it just to help shade it or no uh, <laughs> it could do with chopping back to be honest that's hidecium gardnerianum uh, which comes from the Himalayas but adapts extremely well to oceanic climates and um, it's something uh, we have it here confined by weed matter uh, but even so it is encroaching on the one here and it's due for a chop. Oh okay so it's like bamboo that you are managing it so it doesn't... Yes. Okay. Okay so what do you have coming up soon then? Well, uh, on the 12th of September, they'll be showing uh, a programme of my bioelectrical films on the uh, Threads web channel. Okay. Um, now, my bioelectrical films are something that's come from my bioelectrical music. Um, I've always had an interest in experimental film, and it occurred to me, you know, perhaps I could work uh, bioelectrical uh, mechanisms into making a film. And do they help to generate the images? Well, what, what 
what I do is to, um, they don't, yes, well, basically they do help to generate the images. I feed in, I have, uh, I have uh, various things I use where I can use the bioelectrical sounds that I've recorded to manipulate parameters of the video. Okay. Uh, which can lead to completely unexpected results that you would never have planned or, or thought of. Yeah. So I, I feed in material which can be, for instance, I've done a big series of films called uh, the Agaricon series, which are themed on the Agaricon mushroom, which is a uh, hoof fungus, grows on trees found everywhere from uh, Europe through... Siberia to North America. Does that include fly agaric? No. No, oh, fly similar agaric but not. is a very different family, you <laughs> know. And the medicinal use of agaricon is more uh, as an anti-carcinogenic agent. Uh, it has the reputation of being able to cure cancer and many other ailments. And the interesting thing is, is how widely it was used for those purposes everywhere from Eastern Europe through Siberia uh, to the west coast of Canada, uh, Queen Charlotte Island. So uh, in my Agaricon films, I've, I've used uh, images of Agaricon and uh, little video clips that I've made, and then used sounds that I've recorded from an Agaricon mycelium uh, to manipulate parameters of, of the video. And obviously, I decide how uh, the sounds are mapped to parameters and experiment and when I get a result I like mm -hmm. then I have a section uh, that I can use. So yeah. I see it as a collaborative process between myself and the fungi. And I guess you don't have to pay the royalties yet. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Okay, so we're just talking about how um, lockdown hasn't really affected your ability to make music. No, on, on the contrary, I, I feel it's been, uh, it's, it's encouraged me because um, no longer, with, lock, with, glo with almost global lockdown, uh, everyone has been forced to uh, the, the new paradigm of, of playing and collaborating over the internet. Mm -hmm. So rather than feeling isolated from being spot. Uh, I now feel as connected as anyone else anywhere in the world. And where are your collaborators? Oh, all over the world. Yeah. Uh, my new project has collaborators from uh, Brazil, uh, Ghana, uh, South Africa, um, France, uh, so all over. And will you make one combined piece or will people go away and make their well, it's a, it's a collaborative process which is only just beginning. So I'm hoping it'll work both ways. Uh -huh. I'm, I, I'm beginning by uploading files of my, my serial recordings uh, for other people to work with. Equally, some of them will be sending me their sounds to work with. Yeah. And uh, although it's quite a diverse group, um, hopefully the fact they're all based on mycelial rhythms will give a kind of unity to the whole. And will there be vocals going over the top? or will it Some, there will actually, I should think, be a couple of songs, yes. Cosmo does uh, uh -huh. songs and someone called Hellwards does a uh, song, so yes, cool. so it, it will be very diverse.
Merlin and Cosmo are the sons of uh, Rupert Sheldrake and Jill Perth, uh, both of whom had uh, a big influence on me. I actually suggested the name Morphogenesis for our group uh, because I was uh, enthused with the theories of Rupert Sheldrake of, of formative causation and morphogenetic fields. And about the same time I did an overtone singing workshop with uh, Jill Purse, um, which was amazing and, and uh, something I've continued to do sometimes in performance. So it, it's uh, been lovely to bring it full circle and, and be working with their sons. Yeah, cross-fertilisation. Okay, so how have things changed in terms of biodiversity since uh, you've been on Cape? Because, I mean, you've got a big 23-year perspective now. Yes. Well, we, we've seen a, a drastic loss in biodiversity during that time, much of which is down to the change from cutting for hay to cutting for silage. Uh, when you cut for hay, you've got to wait till late July, usually, when the, the grass is, is dry and brown. Uh, cutting for silage happens early, it starts in June, mm -hmm. which is much too early for the ground nesting birds, for the grasshoppers. Uh, Twenty years ago the fields here, the, well the sky above the fields was alive with skylarks every summer. I'd never seen so many skylarks. They are completely gone. Uh, grasshoppers, again you used to walk through a field and it would just be alive with grasshoppers they disappeared completely for a few years. They've, they're beginning to come back a bit, but still nothing like they used to be. Do nothing like the range of, of butterflies and bumblebees that we used to get either. Uh, something else that's affected them, uh, the overwintering spe species of bumblebee and the overwintering butterflies like the peacock and the small tortoiseshell, we used to have all the Escalonia hedges around the houses, which were Escalonia macrantha, and they would start very flowering very early in the year. It was late January, February they'd be flowering, so the very first bees and butterflies to come out of hibernation would make straight for the flowers and get a good charge of nectar. Mm -hmm. uh, and since the Escalonia blight came, uh, they've stopped flowering so early, they flower much later. But what we found is that seedlings from the old trees uh, mostly seem to be immune to the blight. And so they, okay. they start flowering earlier. Yeah. And so by, by growing as many of the seedlings as we can, we're hoping to boost those bee and butterfly populations. Yeah, it's found a way around. So do we have the funny situation where there's potential, like the population has fallen, but with a fall it's almost like what's the land that's left has now been farmed more intensively, you know? Well, yes, it's bizarre. You know, what? those are topics too big for me to well, yeah. <laughs> cover. But yes, well, this insanity of subsidising the destruction of our countryside, when is it going to stop? Well, I guess we're in an oasis. I, I, think, I think, you know, that... Actually, there is something that everyone can do, and here I'm jumping on my soapbox, but I do believe... Okay, we'll do it. ...the most... ...to save the planet, to preserve our biodiversity, is to go vegan. 
and this has to do with land use and how much food can be produced from the land and basically if we're growing crops and then feeding those crops to animals and then eating the animals it takes 10 to 20 times as much land as if we eat those vegetable yeah. crops ourselves so the more people that go vegan the more land we can rewild and the less intensive farming practices have to be if on the other hand as seems to be happening the rest of the world which formerly had a vegetable based diet is moving towards a western diet of meat and dairy as is happening in China and so on uh, then the planet is doomed because there simply is not enough land on the planet to grow that much animal protein yeah look and I guess we have you do have a rise in veganism but then on the other hand eating meat can be seen as a sign of affluence too and status so Yes, although I think you know certainly countries like China and India are getting beyond that stage, and, and veganism, well, was always a thing in India and, and does seem to be coming back. But I, I do think it's uh, it's, it's important, every, equally important everywhere, really. I mean, we tend to preach about habitat destruction in other parts of the world when we destroyed our own habitats long ago. Yeah. And it's about time we actually reversed that process and started rewilding some of the land. So, I mean, in Scotland they have begun to do that a little bit with a the wolves, bit. yeah. There's a lot of opposition. Have they actually released wolves yet? I thought there was one area, but it was so fenced in that they didn't have a very wide area. Yeah, this is, this is the trouble. It, they face constant opposition from, from farmers and ramblers and so on. Because people don't understand long time spans. To how they remember a place is they decide is how it's always been. Yeah. And it's such a fixed idea. You, you have great difficulty. You can bombard them with evidence that all these things used to live in. No. Yeah. That's how they remember it. That's how it's always been. So it's, it's a battle. Okay, well, uh, look, it's lovely here, and I think this is very positive. Uh, antidote to that so um thank you very much thank you we hope you enjoyed that podcast and we will be bringing you more across as diverse and interesting a range of stories as we can find you're welcome to reach out to us on twitter linkedin or by email and give us any feedback and let us know what you'd like us to cover in the future thanks and keep listening